0: Just go to indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Businesses count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And whether you're going into your office or working from home, you need an integrated PC solution. You need the unrivaled built-for-business PC platform that gives you performance, security, manageability, and stability for your entire PC fleet. The Intel vPro platform. It helps you take care of business and can remotely update, restore, and secure your PCs, even if a system is outside of the firewall. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at Intel.com slash IT heroes.
1: What does fat phobia have to do with racism? I'm Anna North, and I write for Vox about American work and family life. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. In America today, it can be pretty confusing to figure out how we're supposed to feel in our bodies.
0: Your body shouldn't stop you from doing anything. Your body's not keeping you away from doing something you love. Your mind is.
1: In recent years, there's been a groundswell of young people talking about body positivity on TikTok and Instagram. It's
0: my beautiful body. I have jiggly ties, jiggly arms, a beautiful and cutie tummy. This is my second day wearing a tucked in shirt. I can't describe to you how powerful it feels. This was
2: the When you go to a clothing store, tell them to expand their size range. It does not matter what their size range currently
0: is. Tell them to expand it.
1: To be clear, this groundswell has been going on for a while, and in TikTok years, I am very old. But the point is, it feels like there's more conversation than ever around the idea that all different shapes and sizes of bodies can be beautiful and healthy. On the one hand. On the other hand, social media has made it so that fat phobia, body shaming, and racism are much easier to express and share and harder to avoid seeing and taking in. Like,
0: literally, out of everything else that I am dealing with right now, oh, and my disordered eating has come back, too, because of all of the fat phobes and the bullying, I just don't have time for fatphobic people, and I don't have time to, like, defend my existence anymore. And it's exhausting that I have to try and convince people that fat people deserve basic human respect.
1: A few months ago... I wrote a story for Vox about all this. I was trying to get a sense of whether things are better or worse now than when I and other millennials were growing up in the 1990s. But I still wanted to go deeper. Where does fat phobia come from? How do we move beyond the sometimes shallow messages about self-love that we see on our phones and toward real justice for people living in all kinds of bodies? That's where Deshaun Harrison comes in. Deshaun is a speaker, theorist, and author of the book, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness as Anti-Blackness. In it, they argue that weight discrimination actually has its roots in anti-blackness. When you look at it this way, anti-fat bias becomes less of a personal issue, something you could combat with affirmations or self-acceptance. Instead, it becomes a political issue.
0: Yeah, I grew up a fat black girl and now I'm a fat black woman. When you grow up as a marginalized person, you don't have the choice to be apolitical or non political. Your very existence is political.
1: And the only way to address it is through radical change. Deshaun generously agreed to talk to me about what that might look like, as well as how anti fatness plays out in America today, including in ways you might not expect.
3: Welcome, Sean. Thanks so much for being on. I loved your book and can't wait to talk about it.
4: Thank you so much, and thank you for having me.
3: I wanted to start with the word fat. This is a word that a lot of people sort of tried not to use for a while under the theory that it was impolite, even maybe a slur. Can you talk about what the word fat means and how you use it in your work?
4: Yeah, so I think that for me, fat is an identity. It is a marginalized identity in particular that is just the same as any other marginalized identity. And so the ways that I use it is to describe a group of people who are discriminated against and that discrimination being under anti-fatness or labeled under anti-fatness. And so it is for me and for a lot of us who are in Fat activism or fat scholarship, it's a word that has been reclaimed to talk about a group of folks. And we recognize also that it has oftentimes been used in a derogatory sense. And so a lot of us also lead with the belief that we should always be asking individuals how they would like to be referred to. But when talking about a group of folks, we talk about us as fat folks so that we can acknowledge the ways that our bodies have been marginalized for centuries.
3: Got it. I mean, you already mentioned the next term that I want to talk about, which is what is anti-fatness? What does that term mean? What does it look like in practice?
4: Yeah. So I think that in simplest terms, it is discrimination or a system of oppression that harms fat folks. But I think that there is a deeper understanding of anti-fatness, at least the ways that I'm writing about it. For me, anti-fatness is the framework by which the Black fat, as I refer to us in the book, Or the Black fat subject is forced to be inhuman or made to be an object or turned into the beast. And so it's like this universal or global structure that determines how we're engaged in life and in death and determines who lives and who dies. In other words, to name that anti-fatness is anti-Blackness, that there is not one without the other, and that the conditions under which Black folks or the slave or Black fat folks are held captive by the world.
3: I think this idea that anti-fatness fundamentally is anti-Blackness is really fascinating and it's something that might be new to a lot of people coming to your book. Mm -hmm. Talk more about that idea and about where does anti-fatness come from? Where does it have its historical roots?
4: Yeah, so all throughout history, there have been Tons of different thoughts and feelings and experiences with regards to fatness, right? You can find places in history where folks regarded it as a symbolism of wealth, and you can find places in history where it was thought to be derogatory, but anti-fatness as a concept doesn't become a coherent ideology until white Europeans, white slave owners start to witness what fatness looks like on Slaves on African bodies. We get that understanding from the work of Sabrina Strings, Dr. Sabrina Strings, who wrote Fear in the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And in the introduction, she talks a lot about how through the spread of Protestant Christianity through the transatlantic slave trade in the Enlightenment era, you know, that late 18th century, early 19th century time period that is when we get a coherent ideology named fatphobia or anti-fatness, wherein people are being harmed by the structure that says that our bodies are unrighteous or invaluable or dirty or greedy, et cetera. And that only happens through the making of the slave.
3: So it sounds like what you're saying is that anti-fatness, weight discrimination, fat discrimination in America these aren't new and these aren't things cooked up by, like, Weight Watchers or something, but actually this comes directly from slavery and the history of slavery?
4: Exactly. Yes, exactly.
3: That's super fascinating, and I want to kind of go in a minute into the ways that these you know, intertwined anti-fatness and anti-blackness play out today, but I want to kind of first step a little bit back and unpack some tropes that I think readers and I think listeners maybe are going to have in their minds. Okay. First, I want to talk about the idea that being fat is inherently unhealthy.
4: I think that this idea is something that is, or rather something that derives from slavery too. So what I talk a lot about in my book is that the foundation of the medical industry, which is the foundation for health and healthism, is this moment in which white European anthropologists and eugenicists are creating entire mental and physical disabilities to sort of justify harming the slave for trying to revolt, right? It's an attempt to quell any sort of sense of revolution within or amongst the slaves. And so seeing as though anti-fatness as an ideology is developed through the making of the slave, through the making or the creation of slavery, and that also the medical industry, health as a concept is also something that is in the same time period being created through the making of the slave and through the making of slavery, I understand this idea that fatness is unhealthy as something that also is sort of being created in this time period, where there is a general understanding amongst folks that if you are fat, which is to say if you are Black, that you are unhealthy, that you are you know greedy, unrighteous, gluttonous, etc., which is why I arrived to the conclusion that health as a concept is not something that should be reclaimed, but rather it's something that is built into anti-Blackness, something that is built into anti-fatness, and that in order to undo anti-fatness and slash as anti-Blackness, we have to also undo the very concept of health. And I think that that's a very radical, for lack of better phrasing, idea for a lot of people, because we've all been taught that health is something that we should be beholden to. But I am of the belief and of the understanding through my research that this idea that we should be beholden to the idea of health is the very thing that helps to sustain anti-fatness as a project, the very thing that helps to sustain anti-Blackness as a project, because you can be an otherwise quote-unquote healthy person and you can still be labeled as quote-unquote obese when you walk into a doctor's office because body mass index, for example, is something that's derived from French and Scottish cis men, which Black folks have never looked like. So I think that there's just a lot there around why there's a need to undo health as a concept to make room and space for people to better exist in the world for themselves.
3: I want to go back to this idea about body mass index, BMI, because you talk about this in your book and the really interesting history there. Can you talk a little bit about how that was developed? Is that something that was developed by a medical doctor?
4: <laughs> it was not developed by a medical doctor. It was developed by a mathematician, Adolf Quetelet. He was a Belgian man. And he was creating a model that was supposed to determine like the health of an entire population. And that helped develop the quote-unquote ideal man And he was using like the bodies of, again, Scottish and French white men to determine that. And that concept was adapted by medical professionals, also known as eugenicists (laughs) in this time period and anthropologists, who would then later on use that to determine individual health and would never sort of create a model that would be better suited for people who we're outside of that initial demographic. And so it is a model that was determined again by a mathematician that was never supposed to consider individual health, especially for people who were not cis white men.
3: It's kind of funny to me that this thing that I think a lot of people really uncritically accept as, you know, a very important measure of our health, regardless of whether we're men or not, for example, was built on the ideal man. It's like a little funny to me. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then kind of relatedly, can you talk about the history of the idea that there is an obesity epidemic in America? You talk about this in your book.
4: Right.
3: How did we get this idea that there was an epidemic of obesity?
4: Yeah. So in 2004, CDC scientists, along with other pretty prestigious scientists in the U.S., published a journal entry into a very prestigious medical journal, wherein they cite that obesity is the leading cause of death for Americans, that obesity is killing over 400,000 Americans a year and has therefore beat tobacco as the number one cause of death for Americans. And this journal entry becomes the most cited entry in media within a year. It was the new thing to talk about, where now all we could consider was that obesity was the number one cause of death for Americans, and it was the worst thing to happen to America, right? So now scientists have government funding to back their science that helps to sustain and build what we now understand to be an obesity epidemic. But there's a book by Natalie Barrero, who I believe is brilliant, called Killer Fat, where she details the ways that The media, the government, and the medical industry all worked in tandem to create this quote-unquote epidemic, and they all benefited from it. Scientists got money that they needed to sustain their projects. The government got funding that it needed and was able to push a particular narrative throughout the U.S., and the media also got funding that it needed because there was this collective understanding that we needed to push for the end of the obesity epidemic. So everyone who stood to benefit from this epidemic did, and fat folks were harmed and continue to be harmed from it. But that journal entry happened in 2004, and in 2005, the CDC released a correction where they named that the accurate number, quote unquote, was 112,000, and that they got their initial math wrong because what they were doing was going based off of 30-year-old numbers that just said that this amount of fat folks died and this amount of thin folks lived, but never considered the cause of death for the people who were dying versus the people who were staying alive. And so there was a lot of science and math that was used to sort of corroborate their stories. And that ended up being wrong. But by the time they released that, the damage had already been done. It had already taken over the U.S. and At that point, especially because we were living in the 2000s, which was already a very, very, very fatphobic time frame to be living in with the Jenny Craig's and Weight Watchers and anecdotally, gyms were referred to as the clubs of the 2000s. It was the place to be. And so at this point that was all that was needed to sort of justify the diet industry, the gym industry, the fitness industry to give the funding that it needed and it took off from there and we've been living through a quote unquote obesity epidemic ever since.
3: Right, and I have just sort of one more question on this health or quote unquote health space. The CDC people who talk about an obesity epidemic talked about people's having lower life expectancy, chronic health conditions, things like that as a result of obesity. Can you talk a little bit about whether and how fat people experience conditions and harms to their health from discrimination or from anti-fatness and or from intersecting anti-fatness and anti-Blackness.
4: Yeah, so I don't believe that fat folks are dying from being fat. I believe that fat folks are dying in large part because of the ways that the medical industry does not engage our actual bodies and our actual illnesses, but says that the answer to all of our illnesses is weight loss. Oftentimes, what a lot of folks find is that They'll go into a doctor's office for varying reasons and walk out being told that the answer is weight loss. But what we've found is a couple of things. One, weight loss and yo-yo dieting is actually more detrimental for your health than being quote-unquote overweight. But beyond that, also a lot of fat folks end up dying because their illnesses go undiagnosed, their disabilities go undiagnosed, or are misdiagnosed because all that's being considered is that they're fat. And so there's a lot to consider with the ways that we talk about the ways that hypertension and high cholesterol, et cetera, is harming fat folks because what really is happening is that, one, fat folks are less likely to be employed and therefore are less likely to have health insurance. And beyond that, we're also less likely to be believed by doctors when we exhibit any forms of pain and also are more likely to be misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. And so when you have those odds stacked against you, I find it hard to argue that the reason at all for our deaths is our size and not the ways that the medical industry structurally is designed to harm us and to leave us out of any sort of form of care.
3: Right. And then there's one other sort of trope that I wanted to push on here, which is the idea that that being fat is inherently unattractive or ugly. This is like a comment that I remember I used to see from trolls back in the blog era. Commenters would love to talk about this. They talk about like the golden ratio or whatever, Mm -hmm. like a whole business. But I think this still holds a lot of sway for a lot of people. And you have this really interesting discussion in your book about the terms beauty and ugliness, which you capitalize. Talk a little bit about that and what do those terms mean to you?
4: Yeah. So I talk about beauty, prettiness, desire, and ugliness all as structural things. What I'm seeking to do is separate individual understandings of what we do or do not desire from structural understandings of what we do and do not desire. And I think that those things oftentimes overlap, but in some cases they don't. And I think that sometimes people are able to dismiss the actual violence that fat folks are experiencing through desirability because of those experiences. So for example, there are some people who would argue, well, I'm, you know, I'm not, not attracted to fat folks. So how is it that there is something harmful about this? And so what I'm arguing is that you don't have to feel pretty, right? You don't have to feel confident in your looks to be someone who benefits from a structural desirability or structural desire capital. You have the right to be confident in yourself and also be someone who experiences the ramifications of structural desirability. And so that's important to talk about because then you get into the sort of nuances of desire where there are spaces created specifically for fat folks, fat folks and their admirers some folks will call it chubby chasers, even within those spaces right fat folks are being fetishized or there is a particular type of fat body that is being desired. And beyond that what I'm arguing in a much larger context is that if we go back to again Sabrina Strings' work and we talk again about the origins of anti-fatness as a concept, as an ideology, so much about what's at the heart of that is that Africans were not being desired by Europeans, by white eugenicists. What was happening was that they would see fatness on African bodies and say, well, this is actually ugly to me. This is not desirable to me. That then is what leads to this anti-fatness ideology. And so what I'm arguing is that structurally, folks are being harmed by desire and desirability in more ways than one, right? It's not just about who is gaining access to love and to sex, but it's also about who is and is not gaining access to housing and employment and health insurance and proper medical care, etc. And all of that plays a significant role in the maintenance of anti-fatness and anti-Blackness. And so that's why it's so important to understand beauty prettiness, desire, as structural concepts that play a significant role in how we navigate the world.
3: Right. So it sounds like what you're saying is like way beyond, you know, how you might personally feel in your body that day or how you might personally feel about someone else's body. Right. Beauty and ugliness are these social and political categories that are influencing how society treats all of us.
4: Exactly. It's so much bigger than just the individuals.
1: We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, the overlap between anti-fatness and anti-blackness in American courtrooms and in police practices, including the incredibly sinister games police have played with people's lives.
2: Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. The internet is big. And if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small, hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point of sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklyn, in and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com/vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com/vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com/vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like T-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and get back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. I
3: want to talk. A little bit more about this intersection of anti fatness and anti blackness that you talk about in your book. How has this played out across American history? I mean, for example, you talk a lot about how this plays out in the courts and in policing.
4: Yes, I write all about the policing of the black fat, sort of given a chronology of the murders that we witnessed over time between 2014 through 2020, some of the biggest names we saw across our television screens. And how many of those folks were fat or larger in size, and how that reality was oftentimes used as a way to justify the murders by police. In 2014, three of the biggest names that we witnessed was Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner. And all of them, in different ways, experienced their size, their bodies Being used as justification for their murders. So I walked from that point all the way up to 2020 with George Floyd. There was this practice in the 90s and the 2000s, specifically in Cook County, Chicago, wherein prosecutors played a game where they trumped up charges on people who had nonviolent offenses based solely on their weight to see who could prosecute the number of quote unquote criminals soon enough to reach 4,000 pounds in their game. And they would play this game, and sometimes judges would be in on it. So what would happen is that folks who were thin and maybe had more violent offenses would be let off on much lighter sentences so that folks who were fat and had nonviolent offenses were being charged with heftier charges. And that was something that went on for a long, a very long time. And that oftentimes still happens today, even if not explicitly named, and of course, The CDC's report that initially came out in 2004 didn't help with that reality. And I believe that that sort of same concept plays a significant role in who is and and is not murdered by police and how those cases are handled afterwards.
3: Yeah. I mean, the part of the book where you talk about that game played in Cook County and elsewhere, that's absolutely one of the most disturbing parts of the book for me and really shocking. I'm thinking about Eric Garner, I'm thinking about Tamir Rice, Michael Brown. Are these examples where larger body size is being pathologized, is being used as an excuse for police to kill people?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. And part of what I talk about is the adultification of Black kids. Mike Brown was 18, had just graduated high school. Tamir Rice was 12. But the ways that they were engaged was as though they were these super grown adult men even after they were murdered. So yeah, it's absolutely about the ways that fatness, particularly as it relates to Black folks, is pathologized and the ways that it's therefore used as justification for our murders. We witness the ways that prosecutors as well as medical examiners and police and lawyers all use the size of Eric Garner to determine that if the police hadn't killed him, something else would have, as if that matters to the point that he was murdered, right? We witnessed the very same thing with George Floyd after his murder and the ways that his health was used against him to justify his murder. And so there's a long history of Black kids, Black fat kids in particular, being adultified, but also the ways that our sort of relationship to size and, and fatness is often used as justification for these murders.
0: We've
3: kind of talked a fair amount about the history of anti-fatness now and unfortunately brought it kind of right up into the present. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk now a little bit about the way we talk. I want to talk a little bit more about terms and the discourse around body size and body image in America right now. One aspect of the book I really enjoyed is how you unpack and challenge some of these terms. And we've talked about some of them already, including beauty and ugliness. But you talk about some other terms that are kind of really popular, but that may not really be serving us. And one that I'm thinking about specifically is body positivity.
4: Yeah, body positivity individualizes something that's not individualistic, which is to say that what it offers is that if you love yourself enough, if you have enough confidence, if you are able to present yourself in a very particular way, that that somehow undoes the violence of this global structure that is anti-fatness. And the reality is that it doesn't. But beyond that, body positivity and this idea of self-love doesn't really hold room for the reality that Every single day, fat folks are being told to not love their bodies, that their bodies are killing them, that they're being actively harmed by their bodies. And if you are being told that, right, if that's what your daily interaction with the world is, I don't really understand how people expect folks to walk around every single day with that love and confidence within their bodies. It feels impossible. And so what I sort of see an issue with is that in its current iteration, body positivity really only offers this idea that... The only people who have a right to feel positive about their bodies are thin white folks, one, but also fat folks if they understand their fatness as harmful, which is to say fat people who are committed to these are the quote unquote good fats, fat folks who are committed to, you know, quote-unquote, eating healthily, whatever that looks like. Fat folks who are committed to weight loss, who are committed to thinness, who are committed to understanding that their bodies are bad and are harmful and that they have to get rid of the fatness on their bodies. So they're only loving themselves in their current moment because they know that they're getting away from that fatness. Those are the only fat folks who are really allowed space in body positivity. If you're not That type of fat person, then you are a bad fat and you're one who's undeserving of love and care and respect and honor, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a lot that I see wrong with body positivity that really just doesn't invite people into a fat politic and invite folks into being a fat liberationist or what I call myself a fat destructionist that I think is much more useful than body positivity.
3: What does it look like to invite people into being a fat destructionist or liberationist? Like what? Are these more helpful frameworks or more productive frameworks to think about bodies and think about bodies in the world?
4: I think it's exactly what we've been talking about here. It's inviting people into this desire to destroy these structures, to destroy these ideas that allow for fat folks to be harmed by the rest of the world. For me, it's doing the political education. It's engaging people where they are. It's being able to have these conversations on a wide scale that invites folks into Wanting to destroy these concepts that do actively harm us, and I think that that's the staunch difference between body positivity and fat destruction or, or fat liberation. I think that through body positivity, it's understood that it's not okay to be fat, whereas fat liberation says that there's nothing wrong with your body, there's nothing wrong with your size, nothing wrong with how you show up in the world. What's wrong is. All of these different structures that are in the way that keep you from feeling like your best self in the body that you're already in. And let's destroy that instead.
3: Right. And then the other term I wanted to push on a little bit is you have this really interesting discussion of the word insecurity. Mm. What it means to feel or to be insecure as a fat person. How do you understand insecurity? What is its purpose?
4: Yeah, so that sort of goes back to the self-love piece I was talking about a little bit earlier. I've heard so often people say to fat folks who are criticizing gym culture or diet culture or whatever, that you're just jealous or you're just insecure and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, that's not always the case, but also... There is some validity to being jealous or insecure in a body where you are being told every single day that this body is killing you or that you should kill this body, that you are ugly, that you're undesirable, that you're unhealthy, etc. And so I don't see insecurity as something that we should be running away from. I think that we have a right to say, yeah, I am insecure in this body. I think that it's something that we should lean into and say, yeah, I am insecure in this body. And maybe the reason for why I'm insecure in my body is because... I'm being told this, this, and this. And maybe that's rooted in anti-fatness as a concept. So how can we undo that?
3: Sure. I mean, what struck me about that part of the book is that it seems that lots and lots of people in America are quite literally put in an insecure position because of their bodies. Yeah. So that their position in society and and with respect to various services or things they might need is literally insecure. And it makes sense to acknowledge that.
4: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) To me, I feel like it's just very straightforward. But, you know, (laughs) I also understand that we're socialized in a very particular way to where being insecure is probably one of the worst things you could ever be. Sure. So we're led to lie about it instead of being honest about it. And I just am inviting folks into being honest about that feeling so that we can lead to some political education.
3: Sure. The book deals a lot with gender intertwined with body size and race. Talk a little bit about how sexism and homophobia and transphobia intersect with anti-fatness and anti-blackness. So it was interesting, for instance, there's parts of the book where you talk about how black Americans can be ungendered or be disgendered. What do those terms mean?
4: Yeah, so there's a brilliant scholar by the name of Horton Spillers who wrote an essay titled Mama's Baby Papa's Maybe, an American grammar book. And in that book, she talks about what it means to be ungendered or removed from the possibility of kinship as Black folks. And so what that means and what it looks like in a tangible sense is that this idea of man or woman is a very colonial concept. It's a concept that was created to create a class of people, but then there are people who exist outside of that class entirely, right? People who exist as subjects who exist outside of the possibility of being man or woman. And those people are Black folks, right? So Black folks are ungendered as a whole, right? That we're removed from gender as a concept because of the making of slavery. But beyond that, Black fat trans folks in particular are experiencing a very particular form of marginalization. Fat Black trans folks oftentimes are having to pay two or three times what their thin counterparts have to pay for gender-affirming surgeries. Fat Black trans folks are not able to find binders that really fit them and their bodies, right? And so then, if Black folks are ungendered and we're removed from the concept of gender as a whole, and we know that there are even cis men who exist with larger chests, right, and larger thighs, and right, like... The
3: Scottish soldier.
4: (laughs) Right? Not all thin men look like that. And so if that is the case, then... This idea that we have to undergo surgeries in the first place, that we have to put our bodies in harm's way, to feel like we're at home in our bodies, but also to be respected by our cis counterparts, is in and of itself a very cis-sexist understanding of the world. Why do trans people have to undergo this level of harm and violence and hardship to be able to experience a life we're in where we're just respected, instead of cis people undoing their own trans antagonisms. And that is never to say to discourage other trans people from having surgeries, right? Because I understand that for as long as we live in a world that is transphobic, oftentimes surgeries are going to be the only way that a lot of people experience any sort of safety. But it is to say that trans people should not have to undergo these experiences for our bodies to be respected and seen for what they are, and for us to have to feel comfortable in who we are in our bodies.
3: Right. I was really struck by the difficulties that fat trans people have just even accessing gender-affirming care, the prices. Talk about like a surgeon refusing to work with someone unless they're under a certain body mass index, for example, mm-hmm. which is really striking to me.
4: Yeah. There are many surgeons actually in the world who will not work with trans folks at all if they're over a certain body mass index, which Again, if you're going off BMI, most black folks will be. And in fact, it's easier to just say that there are only a handful of surgeons who will operate on fat trans folks. And even that is saying a lot because a lot of them don't have experience with operating on black trans folks. So a lot of fat black trans folks come out of surgery with botched chests or really hard recovery experiences.
3: This is also kind of a rare book in that it focuses on men and mask people, Mm -hmm. when a lot of sort of discourse around fat and body size and appearance is focused on women. Mm -hmm. It's often treated as like a quote-unquote women's issue, although of course it's not. Talk about why you made that decision to focus more on on men and masculine-presenting people.
4: Yeah, it was so important for me as someone who is a non-binary trans person who has done a lot of reading in fat studies, in Black studies, in women gender sexuality studies, And there's so much in each of these disciplines that's so important, so integral to my own experience, but there's no overlap. It's like, if I could separate myself into different beings, then I would be able to fit comfortably inside of each of those disciplines. But I can't, I'm I'm only one being, right? And so for me, it was important for me to, to write something that was able to give language to this experience as a whole experience and not compartmentalize my identities. Oftentimes, especially in fat studies, it is something that is written about as though it pertains specifically to fat cis white women. And for me, that's a huge issue because, again, white women are not experiencing anti fatness without the making of slavery. There is no anti fatness as an ideology if black folks didn't exist, if blackness, if the concept of slavery did not exist. And so for me, it was just very important to write about the ways that trans mascots in particular are experiencing the impact of anti-fatness because it's often erased. And also, yes, the ways that men as well, cis and trans, are also experiencing the weight of, no pun intended, anti-fatness as anti-Blackness. There is no book (laughs) out there that exists like this one. And for me, that was important because there deserves to be words out there like this that really give people language for their experience. And that brings us back to an understanding that anti-fatness is anti-Blackness and that there is no way of separating those two concepts.
1: We're going to take one last quick break, but when we're back, Deshaun Harrison's book is conversant with a ton of historical scholarship, political concepts, and theory. But it's also extremely personal.
2: Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big, or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area.
0: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: We've been talking a lot about sort of historical and political concepts and structures, but this is also a personal book for you. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how your experiences growing up and today informed your writing and thinking on this?
4: Yes. So I have been fat all my life. I was a fat child, a fat teenager, and now a fat adult. And I have been on several diets, have been on several workout regimens. I've seen several dietitians, several nutritionists. I've seen several doctors. And, you know, I have my own relationship with disordered eating. I've had the full fat experience, if you will. And so, I didn't have language for any of that growing up. And it wasn't until around 2016, 2017, when I discovered fat studies that I was like, wow, this gives me a lot of language for what I experienced as a kid and as a teenager. And also, there's still so much here that's missing from what I experienced. And that's because so much about it was very white and very cis and very woman, none of which I am. And so for me, those experiences led me to write this book.
3: I want to ask you a couple things, sort of more looking toward the future mm. and what you want the future to look like. And first, this is to go back to something we've talked about a little bit, but in the book, you write a lot about destroying the world in which fat people and especially fat black people are harmed. Mm. So how how do we go about destroying this world and making a new one?
4: Yeah, so I actually am, am not necessarily arguing for making a new world. I'm just arguing for the destruction of this one. Okay, for me, the current iteration of the world that we live in is something that only, you know, a few people got to determine what it would look like. And I don't want us to make that same mistake. And so I think that if there is something that comes beyond this world, it's something that we build collectively. But what I do know is that this world is destroying us. That this world is killing us and that the only option for that to end is for the destruction of this world. There's a brilliant scholar and a brilliant organizer activist Brilliant thinker by the name of Joy James, her project is the captive maternal, and I I implore folks to go out and, and buy and read her work. She says it's an impossible task, but one that's worthy of us. And I love that quote so much because I think that that is the perfect summation of what it means to destroy the world. Because anti-blackness is a global project, I don't know that it's necessarily possible to destroy the world. And yet, I believe that it's something that we must work towards every single day, right? I believe that it's something that we must put our minds, our bodies, our spirits on the line for, because we're worthy of that. Because we're worthy of trying to get to the other side of what this is, right? And that to me is what that means, tearing down the structures that imprison us the structures that keep us bound and and harm us, and along with those structures, also tearing down and destroying the ideas and the concepts that help to erect them. And to an extent, at least, I think that what is and is not understood as possible and impossible is often determined by what the human mind can and cannot understand. And if humanness is determined, at least in large part, by whiteness, right? and we know that whiteness has its own limitations because it constructs anti-Blackness, then maybe there is an understanding of what destroying the world looks like that exists outside of those confines. And I'm looking for that. And I believe that we find that together. And that's what my hope is in.
3: I don't know if this is possible to answer or even make sense, but what does this kind of destruction look like on a daily basis? Like, what are the small acts that chip away?
4: I think that there's a lot of different answers for this, right? I think that it's about cultivating better relationships with fat folks in our own lives, cultivating better relationships with fat Black folks in our own lives, fat Black trans folks in our own lives. I think that it's about doing continued internal work around our own personal desires, right? Like who we desire and why and how we get away from that, right? And in doing so, not using fat folks as political pawns, but building connections and relationships with us because there's value in who we are as whole individuals, I believe that's the biggest way of doing it. It's through the creation and sustaining of community. I think oftentimes folks run away from that. And a lot of people believe that they can do this all by themselves. But I believe that the only way that we even inch towards destroying these structures is by building community and figuring out what that looks like in our own communal spaces.
3: You touched on this maybe a little bit, but I'm curious what role people who aren't currently fat have to play here. How can they sort of disinvest from the ideas of thinness that you talk about in the book, and how can they support the kind of destruction that you're talking about?
4: So I wrote this essay in 2020. It was the beginning of the pandemic, and there was the uprisings that were happening, and a lot was happening in 2020. And a lot of white folks were asking, you know, how can we show up for Black folks? And in that essay, i Gave three answers, and I think I would give those same three answers here. And that is give up resources, right? Provide folks with the resources that they need that you have access to, house, fund, care for fat folks, fat black folks in a very particular way. And ultimately, be willing to put your life on the line for people. And that's a very big ask, but I believe that that's what it requires for us to destroy these very concepts. I was in a talk the other day and someone they named that in the time when the abolition of slavery was being talked about right that led to a literal civil war. That led to an actual war. The abolition of slavery led to a war and I think that we have to realize that even in that moment that didn't actually end slavery, right? We still experience slavery in different iterations today. Right. So if that is the case, if a literal war doesn't actually end slavery, then there is a lot that actually has to be done to actually destroy these very concepts. And it's not going to happen by posting Black boxes on Instagram or by making useless attempts to prove that you care about Black folks. It's going to require real, actionable work but what I want folks to, to take away from all of that is that there is something very important about the giving of yourself, your time, your resources to marginalized people for the purpose of destroying the concepts that keep us bound. That's going to be so important.
3: You do a lot of writing and speaking in addition to your book, and you talked about some of your other writing here. I'm curious what you get the most pushback on when you talk about anti-fatness, when you talk about anti-fatness and anti-Blackness, and how do you respond to that pushback?
4: Mm, There's two big things that I always get pushback on. One, that people can't really conceptualize how anti-Blackness is anti-fatness and vice versa, right? People are always like, well, that's to say that all Black people are, are fat or whatever, whatever. And I'm like, well, That actually is not what that says, but that is to say that these structures that have been put in place in the world have been put in place to place all Black folks outside of the realm of thinness, of healthiness, etc. And that's not something you should be mad at me about. That's something you should be mad at. (laughs) eugenicists and white (laughs) slave owners and anthropologists for, right? Like, that's not my fault. That's theirs. So that's number one. But two, it's, and this is why I don't call it pseudoscience. I call it science because of how much science has purported that fatness is bad, that fat is a killer. So much about the pushback that I get from people is about believing that I'm leading folks to their deaths. Mm -hmm. So that I respond with this book. So that I refine with this conversation that we've just had, that there's, a host of things that have been implemented and put in place to lead us to a science that fatness is killing us. And what would it mean if we committed to the undoing of all these things you and I just talked about? How would that look different if we committed to that instead of believing that fat folks have to take on the onus of the structural violence that we are experiencing in the world? So yeah, I think that those are the two biggest pieces of pushback that I get.
3: And then the last thing I wanted to ask is something I've been personally interested in and done reporting on in terms of bodies and bodies in the world is how young people, especially in their teens and their early 20s, are experiencing discourse around weight, around fat, around the body. And I'm curious, you know, what you think about this when you hear from young people, when you hear from folks who are still in high school, folks who are like early in college. How do you see young people thinking and talking about their bodies, other people's bodies? And have you seen this change at all since previous generations?
4: Hmm. I love this question a lot. So I think that young folks still have a lot of harmful like relationships with their bodies. Right. But what I also think is true is that at least in my experience, a lot of young folks also have a greater desire to name that they're experiencing disordered eating or eating disorders, that they have a greater desire to talk about and figure out what fat phobia is and figuring out body positivity. Right. And I think that that's Vastly different from what I experienced when I was in elementary middle and high school. I'm also not that far removed. I'm only twenty five
3: you're so young. <laughs> you're younger than me. <laughs> right, I'm like
4: I'm talking about them as if they're like so different,
3: but still, I feel like time moves really quickly now, so
4: <laughs> absolutely. We are definitely a generation removed still. So, yeah, it's like I think that there is a huge difference between the ways that I'm hearing younger folks talk about bodies and size in general. I think it's just. Fascinating and encouraging because it means that the work that we're doing is working, that it's helping to build a consciousness in people who are coming behind us, which is all you can ever really hope for. And also, I think that it means that some other fat black child who's having the experience that I had growing up will be able to maybe start healing a lot sooner than I did. And that means a lot to me too.
3: That's a wonderful, hopeful note. I know there's so much work to be done, but it's nice to think about that future child. So thank you so much for being here. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for taking the time today.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdovska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think. What you want more of. What we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey... If you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. We're off on Monday in honor of
3: Emancipation Day, but join us next Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.